This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Welcome. My name is Mark Elliott Stein, and I'm the technology director at World Beyond War a global grassroots organization determined to end all war. I'm going to introduce you now to five of our board members, each of whom I've been thrilled to get to know, and each of whom brings a unique perspective and background, as well as a strong personal commitment to our anti-war world. The folks joining us here today are Donald Walter from Little Rock, Arkansas, Odile Huguenot-Haber of Ann Arbor, Michigan, Gar Smith of Berkeley, California, John Ruer of Burlington, Vermont, and finally, my fellow New Yorker, Alice Slater. We are a global organization with advisors, board members, associates, and peace pledge signers in 187 countries. Today's topic is This is America, a focus on the effect of the United States of America's militarism and foreign policy practices on our planet, featuring voices from different parts of this troubled North American country. We are recording this as our society reels from constitutional crisis, racial crisis, climate crisis, and terribly mismanaged health crisis, and only a few days after a shocking assassination in Iran, the latest escalation towards a worst-case scenario that all of us hope will not take place, the next deeply misguided American war. As we discuss these topics, I'm going to ask each of my guests to speak from the heart, and to feel free to explore ideas and thoughts that might be outside the boundaries of official anti-war messaging. Each of the guests here today found their own personal path to anti-war activism. As we discuss tough and controversial topics in the hour ahead, please remember that each person here, including myself, is only speaking for themselves and should feel free to speak for themselves. There is no world beyond war party line and there may be many different perspectives here. I hope there will be. With that said, let's jump in by asking each of our guests to briefly introduce themselves. Please tell us who you are and what role you play as part of World Beyond War. I'm going to begin with the person who actually first brought me into World Beyond War because he was the webmaster when I first volunteered to help with our website. He's a part-time techie, but a full-time medical doctor and peace activist from Arkansas. Donald Walter. Donald, can you tell us about yourself? Well, you stole my thunder. I was going to say that uh, my main claim to fame was recruiting you. (laughs) But um, I am uh, uh, one month away from retiring from a 35-year career in neonatology at Arkansas Children's Hospital. Uh, I am... um, a member, I am on the board of World Beyond War and also on the board of Arkansas Coalition for Peace and Justice. Um, and I participate in Citizens Climate Lobby and several other groups, uh, including uh, uh, an inter- interfaith group uh, here in Little Rock. And as you mentioned, I joined World Beyond War four years ago, a year before uh, recruiting you, um, at 
at one of the international conferences that was held at American University. Uh, and I was really taken by the message that it really could be possible to have a world that is beyond war. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, I would now like to turn to Odile. Odile, tell us about yourself. Yes, uh, I was raised in France and I traveled in uh, Morocco, in England, and uh, I was I became an activist in Berkeley in uh, during the time of campaign against apartheid. I have worked for 30 years as a nurse and I am a co-chair of the Middle East Committee of the Women International League for Peace and Freedom. I am on the board of World Beyond War. Wonderful to have you here, Odile. And um, now let's go to Berkeley and say hi to Gar Smith. Hello there. Uh, by purpose of introduction, I'm a longtime Berkeley activist and investigative journalist, um, founding editor of Earth Island Journal, and one of the co-founders of Environmentalists Against War. It's a global coalition of more than 100 peace groups around the world. It was founded in 2003. Uh, in 1964, I was one of the 800 students who were busted in the famous free speech movement sit-in at the University of California campus. The next year, I stood in front of the first troop train to try to bring troops uh, through Berkeley to the Vietnam War. That uh, didn't succeed, but that was the first of several demonstrations. Each demonstration brought larger and larger crowds. And by the fourth attempt, the Pentagon gave up trying. So I guess you could say we actually derailed part of the war machine. I became a member of World Beyond War because World Beyond War combines the tools of action, uh, force of witness, and the problem-solving abilities that I found to be uh, effective in real-life organizing. Over centuries, uh, armies large and small have demonstrated that war doesn't work, and I am happy to be part of an organization that's demonstrating that there are alternatives, specifically the different path that's uh, presented in our global security system, an alternative to war, which looks forward to creating cultures of peace and nonviolent conflict management. It's uh, an honor to be part of the World Beyond War board and an honor to be part of this podcast. Thanks, Gar. And now I'm going to turn to the man who was my roommate at two World Beyond War global conferences, one in Toronto and one in Limerick, Ireland. Yes, yes. Both very exciting events. Yeah, I miss those events, miss seeing everybody in person. So I am also a physician, but retired for several years. And when I try to explain my peace activism, I say that after 30 years in the emergency room treating people for what they did to each other, I developed a great interest in helping them not do that. And war is the ultimate expression that uh, we're willing to hurt each other in large numbers. So it's just great to be on the board of World Beyond War, working to eliminate that as something we think it's reasonable for human beings to do to one another. Uh, I've actually been a peace advocate since my college days. Uh, when I worked on world hunger issues and then became involved uh, with the nuclear weapons issues from a physician's point of view and have been a member of Physicians for Social Responsibility who brought you an end to atmospheric nuclear testing in 1963 and 
were the leaders in putting pressure on Presidents Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev to start actually denuclearizing with great success back in the 80s. I have great interest, too, in alternatives to violence and war. And for me, that means civilian unarmed protection or unarmed civilian protection, where people without arms actually go into conflict zones, for example, with the nonviolent peace force or Christian peacemaker teams or meta peace teams. And whenever I get a chance to do that kind of work, I get into the streets to do it, to prove to myself that human beings really do better cooperating and treating each other gently than they do threatening one another. It's, it's great to be here with you all. John, thank you. Now, a person with whom I've had many exciting conversations in diners in New York City, Alice Slater. Hi, this is such a wonderful idea for us all to be speaking together. I am so delighted to be on the board of World Beyond where I was at the founding meeting when David Swanson and David Hartsborough were there and Leah and a few others, and we drafted the statement to make this an idea of his time has come. And I started as an activist in 1968 when uh, I was a suburban housewife with two young babies, and I saw people rioting at Columbia University. I was terrified. I thought it was the end of the world. And I said, I better do something. And next thing I know, I was co-chair in Massapequa, Long Island. Mm-hmm. It got me at the beginning that we have to stop war. And when my children were grown, I went to law school. And while I was lawyering, I wound up uh, seeing something in the law journal for the Lawyers Alliance for Nuclear and Arms Control. So now I've become like the most experienced person in eliminating nuclear weapons. And we've had a fabulous campaign where we now make nuclear weapons illegal. We got a treaty negotiated over the last 10 years to ban the bomb. We banned chemical and biological. We never banned them. So that was good. And I'm working with the Space Network. And uh, I go to the UN a lot because I live in New York, so I represent the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation there, and I also work with the climate. We have to integrate war and climate and make people understand we're all fighting for the same, you know, for Mother Earth in every way. I'm going to ask each of you where you think the United States of America is right now, and that may mean anything to you. That might mean politically, culturally, why do we have such a tremendous cultural divide? Um, It may mean our place in the world. It may mean what you think. You know, basically, I want to know what you think of the country that we all live in, which has such an impact on the world, and start with Donald. I don't think it comes as a surprise to anyone that our country is very divided, very hyperpolarized, particularly from a political standpoint. And I've done a fair amount of thinking about why should there be so much polarization? Why should we so be so widely divided? And I think it has to do with the fact that for many years, we reaped the benefits of modernism, including scientific discovery and, and, and economic benefits. But as the last century went on, we got to where we could see many problems And war is just one of those. There are many others, including widening gap in economy and more poverty. And um, so as we began to see that there were pathologies in modernism, two things happened. 
some of us became progressives and said, we need to move forward from modernism and overcome some of these problems and become more inclusive and more equalization and so forth. And many of us said, we need to go back to the way things were and became more traditional and started practicing individualism and uh, personal responsibility, which are all very good. But when major parts of our culture started moving in one direction toward more progressive ways of viewing the world, and a whole other segment of our society started moving in the other direction toward more traditional, more individualistic philosophy, we then became hyperpolarized. And do you see hope for this, Donald? Well, I'm always an optimist. One place I, I see hope is that in this last summer with protests around racial injustice with Black Lives Matter, I see elements of more inclusiveness and more acceptance. Each of these protests invited a response uh, that did not agree. But so when, let me mention what I think about the, the election. Biden could not have won this election if there hadn't been a huge turnout of minorities. And I think that was a, a big factor. On the other hand, he could not have won just with minority votes. There were enough of the white majority that said, we don't buy into white supremacy. We don't buy into exclusivism. And they also voted for Biden. And I think it's the combination of more minorities being included and enough of the majority realizing that we need to be a multiracial democracy that gives me some hope. Great. Oh, deal. Where I, do you I, think we are? I agree, with, I agree with some of the last speaker. And I feel that the country has been evolving very fast in the last few years. Gay marriage, a black man for president, Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. climate change, women's equality, and even dominance in the workplace. But I think bigger change are coming and people can feel that. And there is, they are afraid. Some people are afraid of all those change coming so fast. And uh, so there is a backlash. And uh, especially in the rural area, because I think people are not exposed to as much diversity and change there and education. But the thing is that the change are going to continue coming and they're going to come bigger and bigger, I think. And we need to uh, move our resources from the weapon system, the industry system, into the green, the green for climate change, because that's how we can eventually save our species and other species on Earth and continue to exist. And for that, we will need to focus on the problems, the solution, and do a lot of sharing, a sharing of ideas, sharing of solutions, 
uh, across the whole earth, maybe not just in our area, but we have to be very based in our local place also. So we have friends and we have solidarity community around us to uh, help us in the transitions that are coming. The youth has been following a lot of the youth, Bernie Sanders, and uh, the Democratic parties has shied back from that because they felt it was too radical. But there is a big, the youth is much more radical. They've learned a lot from the internet. They are much faster and they don't see the change that they want to see yet. So they can exist and they can play. But I think they're starting to get involved and it's going to be very interesting to see how we can reach out to them. We can create, continue to create those huge coalition to end wars, to uh, change the, to a culture of peace from the culture of wars, of wars, the wall in Mexico, the wall in Palestine. We need to change our mentality and open up because the earth is coming one very quickly together. And so I hope we will move in bigger coalition. There is a big uh, action coming on January 25 on says no to the war in Yemen. And I think that's very important because Yemen is really depirishing its hell on earth right now. And the children's situation is catastrophic. And if we don't move towards saving the children, our human children, then we are not a species that is going to survive. We really need to move our heart and our soul to be more together as one planet and to feed the children and to take care of them, as well as all the other species that are on this earth and plant trees. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, great. No deal. Thank you. Gar. Yeah, I, I salute with the vibrating heart of Deal's comments. Uh, well said. What we need is a radical reinvention of democracy in this country. Uh, we have an institutional crisis. The fact is that we are not a real democracy. Five of the 45 presidents that have taken office assumed power without winning the popular vote. Uh, that's a charade. The Electoral College is an undemocratic system. It needs to be abolished or circumvented. Uh, but even before the, as the failed state issue goes, even before the pandemic took us down, the U.S. was a failed state. Donald Trump took full advantage of that, uh, leveraging this uh, free spe uh, failed speech meme into his Make America Great Again. It's something that, that you notice about uh, Trump's uh, presentation, part of his genius, if you would dare use such a word in such context, is that um, he uses words like uh, great and um, tremendous, or on the other hand, disgraceful. But he never defines what these words mean, leaving it open to anybody to provide their own interpretation. Mm, yeah. But when he says make America great again, it's very clear what he's up to. He's He's been making America hate again. He's... Um, defining uh, people in terms of uh, encampments, enemies, conflicts, uh, uh, jealousies. But uh, when it comes to, de uh, to definitions, let's, let's try a definition of the word uh, extremism. No, let's, let's try exceptionalism. Let's do that one. We're told that the U.S. is uh, the one indispensable nation. We're exceptional. We have the right to do things that other countries don't. 
Well, it is true. Some may argue that we are exceptional, but uh, uh, other people would say we're, we're exceptional in, in a lot of negative ways. We're exceptionally dangerous, exceptionally murderous, exceptionally greedy, imperialistic, and heartless. Among all the industrialized nations, we're exceptional in a lot of negative ways. We've got the greatest inequality in income, the highest poverty rates, greatest number of children in, in poverty, something like, what is it, 13 million kids not getting uh, decent meals, lowest social mobility, highest health care costs, greatest obesity rates, highest dependence on antidepressant drugs, no wonder, abiding inequality in race and gender, largest number of jailed prisoners in the land of the free, an epidemic of gun violence, soaring murder rates, uh, the highest military spending on the planet, and as for our, our wealth, talking of a failed state, our, our wealth is a myth. It's maintained by the printing presses of the Federal Reserve. And last year, the, the deficit, the federal deficit, topped $1 trillion, and that was up from $600 billion under Obama. Uh, clearly, this is unsustainable, and uh, it's going to take some major, major structural reinventions to prevent us from going totally off the rails. Wow. I'm looking forward to following up with each of you on your statements, by the way. So much to dig into here. John. Well, I, I think the polarization is largely intentional by people who control things. Um, you, you could say that war is a logical conclusion of some faulty thinking that keeps us Americans from being our best selves. It actually threatens our existence in so many ways, whether it be climate or war, nuclear weapons or pandemics. But it comes from thinking poorly in a number of ways. You know, one is that it was just alluded to that we are exceptional, that we are in some sense superior to others, the indispensable nation, have a right to control them. And our, our statements from our government military planners are very clear that we are to dominate every battle space. Uh, the, the woman who's up for uh, being our new uh, Secretary of Defense says that we need to be able to sink every Chinese ship in their own seas uh, within 72 hours. Uh, and that kind of thinking of total domination is is what Americans like. I, I saw somebody the other day at a at the Trump rally with a shirt on that said, America, World War champions twice in a row. You know, with no thought of the hundred million people that died in those wars, or what they really meant, or who they, what they were fought for, it was all just a game um, to be won. And a lot of Americans have that attitude. Now, for others, it comes from thinking that if we don't dominate, uh, we'll be attacked and dominated by others. So it comes from a sense of fear, which is what people who want to dominate want to to uh, instill in others. It also comes from thinking that that we're separate from other people, separate from other people on the planet, and that we can harm them without harming ourselves. And that gets back to a, a deep, uh, primal story that that we as a culture believe one way or the other that that we are separate, individualistic, that materialism and our, our decides our sense of worth, how much we can accumulate, and how we can control others defines us. Um, or that we're all in this together, that we're all human beings with, with a task to take care of one another. Those are very different stories. And the, the former, I'm afraid, dominates in America. And that's just reflected in our politics. Uh, it's it's uh, 
it's it's sad. But I think changing that story by one-to-one with education and demonstrating a different life for people is, is something that needs to happen. Great. Okay, thank you. Um, Alice. Wow. I mean, I just want to thank all of you for opening up this space. I, I think we're in a, in a fabulous moment in a way. I mean, it's so awful. You know, the one other thing we said we have the most awful things gone. We also have the most deaths from the plague and people, you know, attacked by the plague. And I was reading in Greek mythology that they had plagues when they had a bad emperor. So here we are. And um, I think we're at the time, we're at a time and space on earth where America has to start telling the truth. We have lived, been living in a lie about manifest destiny, about being exceptional, the city on the hill, that we were superior to the rest of the world. We were going to, you know, create this largesse. Our democracy was was a fake. I mean, we had to get rid of slavery. We had to used to have land and people could only vote. Then the women got that. We still have to abolish the electoral code. We don't have democracy, you know, and... Uh, we're just at this point now where we're telling the truth about uh, slavery, which, and we're talking now about Columbus Day. Why are we celebrating somebody that, that slaughtered and enslaved the people whose land we took? There's going to be a whole reconfiguration. And when I'm thinking about, you know, this almost 50-50 split down the middle for Trump and Biden, there weren't that many racists that voted for Trump. Reagan came in and took away all the, the safety nets and Obama and Clinton followed right down the, the road with that. And that's how we got Trump. There was the rust belt and all the jobs went and there was this, it's the country's being run by Wall Street and the military industrial complex. And that's being revealed even now with this warning that they're, did you read? I mean, there was a, a podcast today with David Swanson did with the deer and another wonderful woman, about her connections to, to manufacturers of armaments, and now she's going to be Secretary of Defense. So in a way, like, we all got together and decided we're going to vote for Biden. I mean, even I voted for Biden. I had to gag to do it. I would have voted for the Green Party, but I just felt like it was so important to show that we didn't want the other guy because he's been so racist and nasty. But we now we have to really get on top of it, and I think we will. I think the kids are eager to go. It's like feels like the '60s, you know. My granddaughter was going to Pennsylvania, you know, getting voters out. Everybody's on the phone now to Georgia, so we can take back the Congress. So um, either we're going to get through this, or the whole planet's going down the tube. So it's a wake up call, and, and I don't think it'll ever be the same. It's not an either or. It's going to be different. It's going to be a whole new economic system, and the patriarchy is gone. It's, you know. Well, great, Donald. I noticed that you and I have something in common, which is that we're both insane enough to try to have in-depth political conversations on social media, and. Um, I've, I've noticed that you you are my Facebook friend. Um, some many peace activists completely avoid. Facebook or completely avoid social media. Others like you and I immerse ourselves in it because this is part of our communication toolkit. 
and we're going to master it rather than fall victim to it. Um, but anyway, I noticed, Donald, that you actually try to provoke conversations, and uh, it, it doesn't miss me that you live in Little Rock, Arkansas, which must be um, a hotbed of conservatism or whatever you, I, I'm not sure how to characterize it. I'd like to know specifically how your anti-war activism, of all things, goes over with your friends, both on social media and in Little Rock, Arkansas. Well, in terms of social media, I do not, I do have a number of uh, very conservative Facebook friends, and I don't, I don't work at provoking them. I work at trying to have civil conversations, and what I, what I, and I usually don't set out to compose a post that will uh, bring up a conversation. But what I find is that I have a thought about something that really weighs on me, and I begin writing. And I don't know what I'm going to say about it. And as I write, my thoughts come together. And it's it, writing is what helps me think about it. And then when I, when I actually post it, most of my friends are recognized that I have put thought into it. And they do not automatically respond negatively. If I may, uh, I actually, sh- I, I agree, and I should not have actually characterized it in such a negative way. You have good conversations, and I do as well, but we have to work hard at it. It, it does take hard work, yes. Yes. But go on, go on. Well, and so in terms of my anti-war activism here locally, I have to admit, I surround myself with people that think like I do. So I go to Arkansas Coalition for Peace and Justice, where I have friends at Pox Christi and WAND. So if, for example, I were to go out and uh, start protesting the base, the Air Force base in Jacksonville, uh, Arkansas, which is just up the road, uh, I dare say that um, I would be ostracized tremendously. And and is that a bridge you try to to cross, or do you basically just keep your bumper stickers to yourself at that point? Well, so that's not a battle that I'm ready to <laughs> to work on. But you know, one of the things that I do find very worthwhile is that there are a number of groups in Little Rock that are interested in becoming more nonviolent individually and reducing violence. We have just any number of programs. And and another group that I spend a lot of time with is the Poor People's Campaign. And so when, when you bring these kind of people together, we have opportunity to do some education in the schools about handling situations nonviolently. We have some programs that we use at the, uh, we go to the penitentiaries and, and help them with nonviolent programs. And so, um, I mean, that's, that's how I re- release my activism energy. And of course, at World Beyond War. Oh yes, of course. And and so that's the other thing is that 
Arkansas Coalition for Peace and Justice is affiliated with World Beyond War. And so whenever any of the groups get together, we we make an effort to um, to get more people involved in our activities. Cool. Odile, I definitely appreciated your optimistic outlook. I would also say that I detected that Alice was very optimistic and that this is really the right way. This is the right way to be an activist is to be optimistic. But Odile, I, w- I want to question in one sense, you know, you're talking about how things went in a positive direction, gay marriage, you know, peace with Iran, um, opening with Cuba, um, and things looked like they were going well. And then I think we're talking about basically the um, the uh, election of Trump, uh, things whipped back in the other direction. It is my perception that things whipped back in the in the reactionary direction far more than they ever whipped forward in the progressive direction. I mean, we never took a dent out of Wall Street. We never we never put a dent in the military budget. And yet the reaction, the whiplash has been ridiculous, extreme and, and unbelievable. And that's how I perceive it. And I'm very worried about what's going to happen in Venezuela, what's going to happen in Iran. So not to dump all of this on you, Odile, but how do you maintain your optimism amidst observations like mine? Well, I think that it's uh, expected when you move forward that there will be one step forward and two steps backward. Yeah. So that's a dance we are on. And uh, it's important to continue moving forward in your work. That's why I like so much from the uh, World Beyond War, the global security system, an alternative to war. I think it's a great book to uh, educate and and also teach ourselves with. So I like things that show me a light forward and to continue the work. And uh, I think that's our role. It's like plowing the field. So eventually we can bloom the flower. So there is always hard work and then there is some blooms and or some winds, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I also like a book that says Think Like a Commoner by David Bollier because yeah. I think we need to share, to learn to share more the resources that we have and also learn to share more with one another. And we need to think about the people in the rural area. There was a time where people had tents and they moved into the countryside and they spoke there. And I think we need to come back to this type of time where we can move in a place that maybe don't have, not like hubs like Berkeley mm-hmm. or like Ann Arbor. You know, those are like a progressive town, but we need to, to change our, uh, sometime our uh, nest or our hub and move where there is not so many groups that are progressive and political. And maybe there are churches and maybe we can make, uh, you know, bring the peace table and bring people together to have discussions so they can uh, learn to think maybe different ways. So 
it's important to uh, push a little bit the limits and to travel in the countries that are less traveled. <laughs> That's my perspective, to stay optimism. Uh, but I also look at what people did in the past, and there is so many great examples. Whenever somebody, uh, I mean, I think even of Joan of Arc, you know, a woman leading the troops of France, she ended up being burned. But, you know, eventually look at where we are now. As women, we can vote, we can work, many women are CEO. So there has been many great change, and we, we need to keep that in mind that we are the pathfinder for the great change of tomorrow and that we are a short time on earth. So you, you may as well do the utmost you can do to bring the light in the past and, uh, you know, share with others and enjoy life because the earth is really beautiful. Thank you again. Um, John, I noticed you have your hand up. Well, I, I heard Odile say that I think we have to move one uh, one step forward and two steps back. I hope I heard it wrong, or she meant Odile. Did you mean two steps forward and one steps back? Because no, Mark one was kind step of implying... backward and two steps forward. That's kind of the dance. Okay. But you know, we move in a step forward. We have all to be united. So, and to do the work when it's winter. I I do think one step forward and two steps back does correctly describe what I was describing as uh, the progress America has made in the last. That's what I heard. I also think that's a Bruce Springsteen song. One step forward and two steps back. Good song. Pretty sure it is. Yeah. Okay. I think it's a polka. Wow! Great. I did not know that. Woke up this morning, the house was cold Checked the furnace, she wasn't burning Went out and hopped in my old Ford Hit the engine, but she ain't turning Giving each other some hard lessons lately We ain't learning The same sad story, that's a fact One step up and two steps back Okay, moving on. Um, Gar, your reference to an alternative or reinvented economy, I, I think this would be a good time to talk about the Green New Deal, which in my opinion is one of the few really good big initiatives going on. I support um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad and the, you know, the, the movement towards the Green New Deal. I have no idea if you do or not, Gar, but I'd like to know what you think about all of this. And and to tie it into the question of the economy, because the Green New Deal is not just about ecology, it's also about the economy. Yeah, I agree that we've got a, a, a big problem with uh, uh, the economy and with the political influences that direct our economy. We have uh, a system here in the United States that uh, uh, I am choosing to characterize as a corporate militocracy. That's a fancy way of saying military-industrial complex. And we've already got a reform effort underway thanks to AOC and the Green Dealers. 
uh, who have set a new standard in politics. One of the reasons we had this incredible negative backlash from the right after Trump's election is because of the role played by money in politics. The Green New Dealers have set a new standard. One of the reasons they got elected so prominently was because they had this standard that they refused to accept large corporate or business grants. They were grassroots funded, and a lot of people responded very positively to that. I think that's one of the paths we have to really set our boots to. In addition to the role of uh, money in politics, I was interested in the the, uh, discussion of uh, trying to converse with people on the other side of the issue with uh, uh, divided America. Um, I was thinking of um, something that I experienced. I had the the opportunity to participate in a documentary that was produced by Al Jazeera on essentially free speech on on, uh, college campuses that came out to Berkeley where we had some big riots uh, over uh, uh, the issue of free speech from the right. And in the process of the documentary, the filmmakers interviewed people both on the far right and members of the Antifa groups. And to my surprise, I found myself feeling that the right-wingers were more approachable than the people on the far left, who really struck me as intransigent and uh, bothersome. So I think it's a strategy worth pursuing at some risk to find ways in which we can discover common ground with Trump America Certainly, we have common interests, food, shelter, reasonable jobs, security, uh, and it doesn't have to necessarily come at the cost of splitting the country in half. Well, you know, we could do an entire hour-long podcast about that one question. So much that we could say. John, I have a different question for you, and this is just relating to... um, personal conversations we've had about the role of religion in peace activism. And I think you and I have both agreed that religious groups have always been a major part of peace activism through history. At the same time, right now in the USA, there seems to be divides along ethnic groups. And by the way, I'm speaking from Brooklyn, where I'm surrounded by Hasidic communities on two sides of me, um, one in Crown Heights and Um, one in Borough Park, which are, um, these are Hasidic Jews who, I I shouldn't characterize the group, but there there is a very large pro-Trump sentiment because they perceive, in my opinion, crazily, that he might be good for Israel. I don't see how, but the word religion, John, means so many different things to so many people. What is the role of religion in peace activism? Yeah, that's a huge, uh, huge, huge topic. And we have to start in the, you know, the recent news that, you know, the first time Trump was elected, he got about 80 80 to 85% of the evangelical uh, Christian vote and got only a little less this time. Uh, even after his behavior. So what does religion mean to folks is the, is the question. I have relatives who, well, my sister in particular just sent a an email to the family, and they rarely speak up about political things, saying that there was only one way to vote in this, because it was the only chance that we had to get rid of what she calls the Holocaust of abortion. And that that for them is one issue. And how it gets to be that way is because of who they've chosen to listen to over the past many years. Sure enough, they sent a, a video around of a priest saying all the ways that Joe Biden wasn't Catholic. 
And in, in from one particular Catholic perspective, that was very, very true. But in other Catholic perspectives, uh, there, there are many issues besides abortion. My perspective, having, having been a, an ardent Catholic for many, much of my life, uh, now a little more aligned with Quakerism, is that religion, while it offers many beautiful benefits for people trying to figure out their place in, in the world and giving meaning to life, which is a tremendously uh, important meaning, and when it's not met, leaves people vulnerable, I think, to demagogues and folks that can lead them down the wrong path. Likewise, though, when they buy into a belief system, um, not so much a belief system, but the following of a particular religious interpretation of a belief system, particular person or personality, they can also be easily misled. So looking through history, religion's done a lot of good for people. Uh, you know, certainly it's religious orders that built hospitals and uh, universities and so forth, but secular people did also. It's tough. Uh, the saddest thing for me, having, having been a believer for so many years, is to see that it doesn't make as much difference. I think in, in my own tradition, Catholicism, for example, it was pretty much split down the middle who voted for who. And I guess I want to be part of a spiritual system where it makes a huge difference on how you live, if that makes sense to you. Sure. I've been reading a new biography of President Jimmy Carter, who is one that I tend to admire, and was really interested to learn how much religion has completely driven him. Back in the early 90s, I was working with Christian peacemaker teams. And one of our first missions was to Haiti, where the Catholic president, the first democratically elected president, was ousted by, by uh, paramilitaries. And there was much talk about uh, whether the U.S. should invade to right that alleged wrong, uh, all of which I've learned in retrospect was a farce, but that was the idea. And that invasion was actually prevented by Jimmy Carter mm. inviting, uh, what was his name? Raul Sadrick, I think was his name, one of, the, one of the military coup leaders, to Plains, Georgia to talk to his Sunday school class. Mm -hmm. This was a man who was a clear war criminal who slaughtered civilians. Um, but then again, our government kind of does that on a routine basis anyway. But that was an example of Jimmy Carter using religion for good, I think, in a sense, actually preventing that war. Yeah. I mean, I think that's actually what I was trying to get at is that he, he really seemed to, it, it really seemed to drive his peacemaking efforts specifically. Um, and that was a, that was something I hadn't realized before. And still does. Um, that, you're right. You're right. I've been very encouraged here locally that we have a pretty active interfaith uh, group that um, that actually worships together uh, several times a year, uh, and they have an active youth group that where members of di different faiths can come together. To, uh, to learn from each other. Um, and I think that's been a, a very positive thing here locally. I had wanted to say to Gar that there is a book I found in England, The Greens in England, where uh, reading and discussing, it's called The Donut Economics by Kate Roworth. And I think it's well uh, worth to read that book. It presents a different feminist economy or uh, just a different economy that is more egalitarian. And I think it's a good book. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to say to John, perhaps Catholic, 
that the best Catholic we have on the planet right now is this Pope Francis, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. He's really giving Catholicism a good name again. He was so helpful to us with the ban treaty. The Vatican voted at the UN for it, and he spoke out for it, and he's been speaking out against hunger and poverty and, you know, some of these girls. Oh, yeah, he's absolutely wonderful. Uh, And we've been pushing him with the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative to get him to rescind the just war theory. And in his latest encyclical, (laughs) he he didn't quite do that. He he just left a couple of words in that said, maybe, just maybe you'll still need a war sometime. But otherwise condemned it as a failure, almost universally as a failure. That's that's progress. I think he's also spoken out against the um, exploitation of the abortion issue as a political wedge. Yeah, for exactly. He has. Which I really appreciate. Kind thoughts towards homosexuality. I mean, you know, it's yeah. so unusual for Pope. It's been bad. Um, any last thoughts? Well, one of my last thoughts, which I think we're up to now, is like truth and reconciliation. Hmm. We're doing yeah. with the Me Too, we're doing with Black Lives, we're doing with the Native American, we have to do with the U.S. and Russia, we have to do with U.S. and China. I mean, that podcast I was on, I had no idea all the bad things we had done to China or America. Right. And I think we need one among American citizens, for sure. Right. You know, as we've been talking about, so I definitely, and, and I know those have been very successful. Um, and when we were talking about economics... I mean, we have to look at the land. None of this land belongs to us. We took it from somebody, and now we're fighting over it, and we're exploiting it. I mean, we're, like we might have to – this whole system is going to change, even how right. we address property, you know. Well, you know, maybe that the, – the question is right now, what can we do? I think we can elevate the voice of the Native American Indian woman and the voice of the African American woman to put them, to give them a microphone, to let them speak, elevate their vox. I think that's the best thing we could do to move forward also. Absolutely. Well, the two takeaways I have are that um, the, that the real motivations behind all of this are greed and fear. If we could mm-hmm. overcome greed and fear, then we could end war. You know, Donald, you took those words out of my mouth. I have, I think I've said the same thing, and that's absolutely right. Well, I was speaking of dance, one step forward and two step backward, but sometimes we need to step sidestep. And that's what we did with Ban the, the Bond Treaty. We sidestepped the NPT, and it was a win. And that will change the, you know, it will change the chessboard. So maybe we have a chance uh, to to continue moving forward that way on nuclear weapon. And I hope also on weapons that we will move towards the environment, our economy. I'd like to uh, uh, observe as a political immediacy. I, I think it's fair to say that the fate of the U.S. and Quite possibly, the planet rests on the outcome of two Senate races in Georgia. Right. Uh, that is so important to our near and present future. Um, overall, I'd say that um, 
all Americans, especially Americans, need to pay more attention to the world outside our borders. And I, I remember a, a banner that was uh, in a photograph for a while. It's, it's hard to find it on the Internet now, but it was being held up by a group of survivors of U.S. bombing in the Middle East. And the, the banner read, America, ask why you are hated. Hmm. I think it's imperative for us to, uh, you know, join the, the European Union in demanding an accounting for the death of another Iranian scientist. Yes. Uh, I'm not aware of any American politician who has yet raised uh, an objection. Right. Uh, we we need to hold people accountable for gross political crimes, and this is certainly one. Um, we need to speak in defense of peace treaties that that uh, Trump has abrogated. Uh, the Biden has has said he's willing to uh, uh, revive the Iran nuclear deal. That's great. That's great. We also need to revive the uh, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty and the recently abrogated Open Skies Treaty. There's a lot of work to be done. But uh, Sharon Tennyson really, uh, she's with the Center for Citizens Initiatives, and she really said uh, recently made this observation. Although we American citizens pay little attention to treaties, Russian citizens do. I remember when Ambassador Matlock stood in Washington, D.C., and he said, nothing will change unless many American citizens themselves get involved. So far, it hasn't happened. It's time for it to happen. I just want to say, if our government continues to be undemocratic and um, obviously unjust, we're going to have to rid ourselves of this government one way or another, um, because we can't endure this anymore. Agreed. Yeah, I, uh, I like what everybody has said so far. I just want to amplify the the belief that it, it does come down to love and greed. Although I would argue, perhaps that greed, the underlying uh, uh, underlying pathology behind greed is is fear that you won't get enough, that you didn't get enough as a as a youngster or something, and that the antidote to fear is love. And I see our mission really as making love real in the world, witnessing to it, turning it into real policies. And I, and I think the, the mechanism of that is understanding the full range of nonviolence, uh, you know, in, in three realms. One is, is learning to center, learning to uh, meditate and contemplate and center oneself. And secondly, to, to learn to talk to one another in ways that are gentle, that don't create fear and separateness. And that's some form of nonviolent communication. And then finally, when, when people are too far gone to communicate with you and cannot center themselves, that nonviolent action comes into play. And I think that's a skill set that we can play out, uh, making love real in this rather troublesome world. You think about it. We never even saw the earth until 1967 where they saw the earth from the moon where we got how united we are how we're, we're just one planet well, you know we're it's starting to seep into consciousness that we have to shift here. right we we never connected the earth until around 1993 in my perception when the internet was basically became viable right. um and so we're really yeah we just have to keep on keeping on 
I can think of no better words than keep on keeping on. And I'll see you all at the next board meeting. And to everybody who's listened to this, thank you. And please tune in again for our next podcast. Give us a good rating on whatever service you listen to. And thanks to all my guests and everybody out there. Bye. Appreciate it, Mark. Thank you. And thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Bye. Bye.